We showed up here this morning, and there was no power. And then the power came on right as we were getting ready to start. And then right in the middle of the second song, Jen's iPad that she uses for music started installing a system update. So it's been one of those mornings around here. And as we gather for our last time together as Trinity Church here in the Apple Patch Chapel, isn't it kind of fitting that this is how it goes? Like, we've never been the smoothest operation in town. Uh, we've never been the, uh, we've never had everything all together and the ducks all in a row. Um, but Christ is still worthy. And we can still sing and celebrate and rejoice all the same when things go sideways, um, being reminded of the glory of the God that we serve. So this is our last Sunday. Uh, if you're joining us online and, and you're, uh, you're not sure what we're talking about, um, over the last month we've been building towards this day as we take on a reset of sorts as Trinity Church. So we are going to be continuing to meet. We're suspending our public services for a time. Um, we're going to be meeting as a, uh, as a core group um, with kind of a house church model. We're going to be partnering with Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, worshiping with them from time to time um, for encouragement, getting out into the community as we seek to build our core team back up and eventually relaunch public services sometime in the next year. Um, but this morning is our final gathering here. Uh, almost three years after our launch service, September 10th, 2017, was our first Sunday that we gathered for worship here at the chapel. Um, so we're coming up on our three-year anniversary. And three years ago, um, we launched Trinity Church doing the same things that we gather to do today. We sang songs of worship. We listened to God's word taught and proclaimed. We joined together in communion, celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. And this morning, as we arrive at a day that we didn't plan for, that wasn't something we set out to say, all right, three years from now, let's be changing things up. We arrive at a day that has a measure of sadness with it, right? That this isn't how we saw this year going. It's not how we thought our third anniversary will look. Um, but as we continue on, what does the future hold? How do we look back on God's faithfulness to us over the last three years, while at the same time looking forward to a new chapter? Uh, and as we do that, I think it's a good time to revisit our mission, right? What are we about? What have we been about as Trinity Church for the last three years? And what will we continue to be about going into the future, even if some of the external trappings look a little different for a season? What will our mission and vision be? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning. I want to pitch to you this morning. I want to propose to you this morning that our mission and vision is going to be the same as the mission and vision we've been about for the last three years. The externals can change. The location can change. The size can change. The methods can change. The practices can change. The traditions can change. But the mission stays the same. Because the mission has been the same for 2,000 years. We don't get to set our mission as a church. Jesus sets that in place. Jesus gives us the path that we follow. And so three years ago, as we sat here for our launch service, we looked at the closing verses of Matthew to set the tone for what we wanted Trinity Church to be about. And this morning, we're going to look at those same verses because we want to set the tone for what Trinity Church will still be about in this new stage, even if it looks different on the outside. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 28. 
verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. As we consider the ending of a book we've been studying now for months and months here, looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll come back to that as we meet over the next few months. Um, But we're going to look at the end of the book. We're going to be reminded at where this trajectory is headed as we head into the future. So read with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray, and we'll jump in and study it. Father, we ask you this morning, as we've asked you many, many times, as we come to your word, as we wait to hear from you, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. By the power of your spirit, to the praise of the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. All right. So let's think back. Let's think back to three years ago to our first Sunday, to our setting out on this journey as a new church plant. When Dave and Tom at the time and I sat down to write the mission statement for Trinity, it was a pretty short conversation. There wasn't a whole lot of back and forth. There wasn't a whole lot of deliberation because the church doesn't get to determine our own mission. Jesus has already done that. And as we open these verses today, we see a passage that's known as the Great Commission, where Jesus gives us our marching orders as his people, where Jesus tells us what we're to be about, what our mission is, what our task is. So we're going to look at these few verses this morning and be reminded that wherever we find ourselves a week from now, that wherever we find ourselves a year from now, This is what we're to be about as Jesus' people. As long as we gather as this local body, as Trinity Church, or as Jesus scatters us, as he scattered many of us, many of the people who sat sat here three years ago are not here today because of life changes and, and moves and jobs and marriages and all sorts of different factors. But where they sit this morning in their churches, their mission is the same. Because we all are part of the universal church, the holy Catholic church, as we talk about from the creeds. It sounds strange to our ears, but the church is all one across the planet throughout all time. And we all have the same mission. And it's given by Jesus in these verses after his death, after his resurrection, as he's sending these disciples out into the world. Now, it's interesting to note that before Jesus gives us our command here in verse 18, He gives us the basis for that command, right? How can we accomplish the task that he's giving us to accomplish? We we can accomplish it because of the reality of verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a remarkable claim. Would you just stop and think about this this morning? Kind of hit pause in your brain and meditate on that sentence. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Jesus is claiming that he is Lord of the universe. 
that he is in charge of this world and everything in it, everything that exists. On what basis can he make this claim? People have looked back on this claim from Christ for 2,000 years and asked some people, who does he think he is to say that? How can Jesus say all authority in the entire universe has been given to me? Well, he can say that as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel. Because he's God himself. He's not just a mere teacher. He's not just a mere prophet. He's not just a human being with some good ideas about how we should all be nice to each other. He's a little bit more than that. He's God in the flesh, and he claimed that throughout his life and ministry. John chapter 8, verses 51 through 59. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Right? As we've seen in the clashes with the Pharisees, these people get it. They get who Jesus is holding himself up to be. They get the implications of the things that he said, of the things that he taught. Because the Pharisees see him and they say, who do you think you are to say that if anyone keeps my word, he shall never die? Abraham died. The prophets died. You bigger and better than them? Listen how Jesus answers. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is a massive claim. Before Abraham was, who had been the father of the nation of Israel, who had lived over a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's bad grammar, but it's good theology, right? When Jesus, we would expect him to say, before Abraham was, I was. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. Remember when Moses When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and sent Moses to go to Pharaoh in Egypt to to have the Israelites released from slavery, to let his people go, Moses says, who am I to tell them is sending me? What's your name, God? And what did God reply? He says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. The name of God, the covenant name that he revealed to Moses. And so Jesus here doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. And they understood exactly what he meant because they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy because they understood he was claiming to be God. So Jesus claims the authority of God himself. Why should we believe that he actually has it? Right? Because the fact that Jesus claimed divinity, that's not actually new. He's not the only one to ever hold up that card. Kings, emperors, Religious leaders throughout history have claimed divinity in one form or another. If Jesus made these incredible claims, on what basis should we, as thinking people in the 21st century, believe them or reject them? Well, the Bible invites us to evaluate Jesus' claims of authority on the basis 
of, time, of the time and space historicity of an actual event, whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. A lot of people have claimed divinity, have claimed to be more than a mere man, but all of them are in the ground. Jesus died. Jesus predicted his own death, said he was going to the cross to die for the sins of his people. He died and three days later rose from the dead, bodily, actually, was dead and then wasn't dead anymore. If Jesus made his claims and then died like everyone else, we could dismiss that easily enough. But what if he actually triumphed over death? The great leveler of humanity, the one that's batting a thousand percent, everybody dies. If Jesus could come out the other side of that, now suddenly we have to take his claims a little more seriously. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And Jesus provides the extraordinary evidence when he walks out of the grave on the day that we celebrate as Easter Sunday morning. And the Bible invites us to evaluate what he said based on what he did, based on his resurrection. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Bible says to you, that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then Christianity, faith, church is the biggest waste of time on the face of the planet. If this gives you just a happy face to put on for this life, if church, if your faith is just something that helps you endure tough times and, and come out the other side and keep going, ultimately it is going to prove to be a pitiful exercise. Because you're banking your reality on something that is powerless. A guy who's dead and in the ground 2,000 years ago can't help you tomorrow when you have a crappy Monday. Can't help you when your marriage is hard. Can't help you when your job is difficult. Can't help you when you face tragedy or suffering. Can't help you when you turn on the TV and see the world seeming to go up in flames. It can't help you in any of these cases if he's dead. But if he's not if he's alive, if he's God, and all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to him, if he's king of the universe, that changes everything. And it gives him the authority to set our mission. We believe Jesus sets the mission for me, for you, for us as a local church, for us as the universal church. We believe Jesus sets the mission because we believe he's been raised from the dead demonstrating he's God in the flesh and holds all authority over the whole world. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is in charge. And everything we do, we do because of that reality. And so Jesus sets the mission, not us. That's been true for Trinity for the last three years. It will be true for Trinity in whatever shape and form we take over the next three years. Jesus sets our mission, not us. So because we believe that, that's the groundwork that our existence is built upon. Because we believe this reality, 
Where do we go from here? What does he actually call us to do? What is the mission that we've been handed? Our mission is to make disciples. We are called to go, excuse me, and make disciples. Look at verse 19. After he's given us this command or this reality that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, go therefore. Because of that, go and make disciples. We're called to go and make disciples. We're called to baptize them and teach them. That's kind of the two components that Jesus highlights here, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So what's he getting at here? When the Bible baptizing isn't some magic ceremony that gives us special spiritual benefits, but what purpose does baptism serve in the Christian faith? It is a public expression of a changed life, of a changed heart, of a changed reality. It's a way to demonstrate in visible symbolic form our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's why we have been and will continue to be passionate about the gospel, about the gospel of Jesus that transforms lives. That's what we're about. That's what we're about in our worship. That's what we're about in our outreach. That's what we're about in our community groups. That's what we're about in our families. That's what we're about in our friendships. We want to be about the gospel. What is the gospel? Literally, the word means good news. It is an expression. It is a communication of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. It was actually a term in the ancient world that was quite familiar Right, gospel, we think of gospel purely in religious terms, right? Gospel is a churchy word, right? Not so in the ancient world. They were used to hearing gospel proclamation as a declaration of the triumphs of a king or of a general and the blessings that people would enjoy because of that king or general's victory. So when someone conquered a land and brought peace to a, a, war, a, a land that had been covered by war, they would have a parade and this king or this general or this emperor would ride through the city. And the heralds would proclaim the gospel, the good news of Julius Caesar or whoever the, the, the king or general might be. They have done these mighty deeds. They have won the battle. They have won the war and brought peace to you. Gospel is about the good news of what has happened and the implications it has for the people who receive it. Jesus' gospel, Jesus' good news is his perfect sinless life, his death on our behalf for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead to demonstrate his victory over sin and death. What is the gospel in a nutshell? It's Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life that we can't live. He died the death that we should have died, and he rose again for the dead. That is what happened. That is the good news that Jesus accomplished that is being proclaimed. Now, what are the implications for us? Well, the gospel calls us to repent from our sin, to turn away from our rebellion against God, and embrace Jesus in trust and faith instead. And in return, we're offered peace with God. We're offered eternal life. 
That's why we're passionate about the gospel at Trinity. It applies to everyone. All of us live in this world. All of us have fallen short of the perfect standard that God has set. All of us make mistakes. Everybody tosses around the phrase, nobody's perfect. We know that. And and we've just come to accept it. But it's true. You're not perfect and neither am I. God is. And his standard of righteousness is perfection. And people have spent millennia crawling on their hands and knees trying to reach that standard, trying to appease God, trying to be right and righteous in his sight. The good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to enjoy that, for us to come into God's presence, for us to be called his family. As we sang in in Is He Worthy, to be a kingdom and priests that God has made us his people, reigning with his son. This is the gospel. And baptism is the way that we express to the watching world that that has become a reality in us. So when Jesus says, go therefore into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, he's not just saying run around and dunk people in the water as if that's the whole ball of wax. Baptism is the expression that that change has taken place. The gospel isn't just the entry into Christianity. It's not just the way that we initially trust God and then we're up, it's up to us to do the work the rest of the way. God's grace continues to grow us day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, making us more like Christ. So we're big about the gospel because Jesus was big about the gospel. He sends his people out to make disciples by baptizing them, by introducing them to him, to his good news, inviting them to repent, to trust. We're going to be about that at Trinity. We've been about it for three years. We're going to be about it in the future. We don't want people to walk into one service here, sit in on one small group gathering, and leave without understanding what the gospel is and why it matters. If we get nothing else right, we're going to get that right. Whatever those gatherings look like, whether they're in another building, whether they're in a house, whether we're out in the community serving people, meeting people one-on-one, we want to communicate the gospel. This is primary. How do we know what the gospel is? How do we know what Jesus commands us to do? Well, we're, we're opening the Bible today to find out. And we're passionate about the Bible as we talk about week after week because it is through the Bible that we understand all these things. It's through the Bible that we know who God is, who we are, how we're supposed to relate to him. And so if we want to know the gospel, if we want to communicate the gospel through our words, through our actions, we've got to know the Bible. We've got to dig in. We're not calling people to follow some message that we've dreamed up. This isn't our message to proclaim. We don't get to, all right, we're we're going on a new path, right? We're not going to be meeting in the chapel anymore. We're doing a house church thing. We're partnering with another church. We're changing things up. We don't get to change the message. We don't get to change the message to make it more palatable. We don't get to change the message to make it more easier for people to accept. The message is what it is. It is given to us. It's not up to us. It's not up to me. It's not up to Dave to decide, well, what are we going to be about? What are we going to proclaim? What do we want people to understand about Trinity, about God, about Christ. We aren't here to teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded us and some extra rules that we made up ourselves. 
right? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Right? We need to know the Bible to know what Jesus has commanded and what he hasn't. Because there have been some who ignore what Jesus said, who claim his name, claim to be followers of him, but ignore his commandments. And that does no good. It doesn't present Jesus as he truly is in his full power. There's others who present Jesus and they layer in some extra things on top of his commandments, which sets us up as an authority equal to him. We don't want to be about that either. We want to follow Jesus as he is. We want to hear him in his own words. And so we need to know the Bible. So if this is our task, to go and to make disciples so that they would be baptized, that they would come to faith and repentance in Christ, and we're teaching them to obey everything Jesus has said. We want all of Christ for all of life, for all people. How do we go about doing that? How do we make disciples? How do we make disciples when we're not going to be meeting in a church building on a Sunday morning? How do things change for us now that the way that we meet, the place that we meet, and those trappings are changing. Well, let's be reminded, what does it look like to make disciples? Jesus made disciples, right? He's surrounded as he's teaching here to the 11 guys that we call the disciples. We've walked through the book of Matthew. We've seen the way Jesus relates to this core group of followers called the disciples. So let's be reminded, as we go into the world to make disciples, how did he do it? And guess what? He didn't have a building, not once the whole time, yet he made disciples. What did Jesus do to make disciples? Making disciples, let's be reminded, is not just a Sunday morning practice. It's not just a Sunday morning effort. It is an all-of-life pursuit. Everything that you do goes into making disciples, making someone like Christ by what we say, by what we do. So how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus make disciples? We're going to give you just a quick summary of things Jesus does with his disciples in the book of Luke, just in the book of Luke. Jesus called them to follow him, right? In Luke 5, 1 through 11, he calls the disciples to follow him. This is often the only part of disciple making we think about, right? That we're just we're telling people to follow Jesus. We're preaching. We're evangelizing. We're sharing the gospel. That's how we make disciples. And it is. And it's the entry point, but it's only part of it. It's only part of the equation. He called them to follow him. But then in 5, 29 through 32, he ate and drank with them. In 6, 12 through 16, he invested especially with a few. In 6, 20 through 49, he taught them. In 8, 4 through 15, he used stories to explain spiritual truth to them. Here's my little side note plug that fiction matters, right? The books you read, the movies you watch, the stories you tell can communicate something about the reality of Jesus. It matters. It's how Jesus taught. In 8, 22 through 25, he met them in their fears. In 9, 1 through 6, he sent them out to learn by doing. In 9, 10 through 17, he challenged them to grow in faith. In 9, 18 through 20, he pointed them to his divinity. In 9, 21 through 22, he focused them on his death and resurrection. 
In 9, 23 through 27, he called them to suffer. In 9, 28 through 36, he gave them glimpses of his glory. In 9, 46 through 48, he rebuked them in their selfishness and pride. In 9, 49 and 50, he rebuked their tendency to spiritual clickishness. In 10, 23 through 24, he encouraged them. In 11, 1 through 13, he taught them how to pray. In 11, 27 through 28, he uplifted God's word in their presence. In 11, 29 through 32, he taught them to see that the Old Testament scriptures were about him. In 12, 1 through 3, he warned them against hypocrisy. In 12, 8 through 12, he taught them to trust the Holy Spirit. In 12, 13 through 34, he taught them to trust God for their physical everyday needs. In 12, 35 through 59, he taught them to see the world through spiritual eyes. 13, 1 through 9, he called them to repentance. 13, 22 through 25 through 35, he taught them that their faith and not their religious identity would save them. 15, 1 through 32, he impressed upon them God's redemptive heart. 16, 18, he emphasized a biblical view of sexuality. 17, 7 through 10, he warned them against feeling spiritually entitled. 18, 1 through 14, he used everyday scenarios to illustrate the kingdom of God. 18, 15 through 17, he taught them to value kids. 19, 1 through 10, he showed them that there are no spiritual loss causes. 1941 through 44, he modeled a broken heart for lost people. 20, 45 through 47, he warned them against a professional spirituality. 21, 1 through 4, he taught them the true nature of generosity. 21, 5 through 38, he called them to live with an eye to the future. 22, 24 through 30, he modeled the attitude of a servant. 22, 39 through 46, he modeled dependence on God during times of suffering and distress. And in 23, 34, he modeled love for his enemies. And now he stood before them, encouraging and empowering them in the light of his death and resurrection. In short, disciple making is a comprehensive effort involving all of life. It happens on Sunday morning, sure. It happens right now as you're listening to me explain the Bible. But it also happens around the dinner table. It happens as you enjoy your leisure time. It happens as you have conversations with friends about the joys of life, about the sufferings of life. And we have a chance to point people to Christ in all of those situations, to model in our behavior and to direct them with our words at what Jesus came to accomplish and what he offers to us today. Because of this, disciple-making is a group effort. It happens with other people. Jesus is talking to how many guys here? Eleven, not one. On the one hand, that emphasizes to us that disciple-making is a group effort, that we need each other, we need the church. It's not something we're meant to do on our own because we're all different. We all are gifted in different ways. We're going to be better at different things, and we're going to struggle with different things, and we need each other to fill in the gaps. We need each other to communicate the full picture of what it looks like to be followers of Jesus Christ. But it's also important to note that Jesus says this to 11 people, right? It's easy for us. It's been easy for me for three years now to think, what kind of difference can we really make? Because there's not that many of us. We're a small group. 
Well, Jesus started with 11. I think we got 11 covered in here today, right? 11 turned the world upside down because they were obedient to what he gave them. So there's nothing about our numbers that says we can't see transformation happen in people's lives. And we've seen transformation happen in people's lives. And we all here could stand up and give testimony to what is different about us, how we're closer to following Christ, how we are more like him now than we were three years ago because of what has happened among this local community. We're passionate about the church and we will continue to be passionate about the church. Like we've been fond of saying, not as a place that you come to, but as a family that you're a part of. You guys have been that family to me and to each other for these last three years. And I am so, so thankful, so grateful. I smile when I think of the stories in my own mind of what I've seen God do in and among us. And it gives me hope and excitement for the future of what he will continue to do in and among us as we're together or as we separate and go off into different local churches and different places and different things and and parts of life that God calls us to. Making disciples isn't something for professionals to do. It's not just the preacher's role. It's something that all followers of Jesus want to be a part, want to play a part in. These guys were not seminary trained that Jesus is talking to. Half of them couldn't read. They were illiterate, uneducated men, fishermen, tradesmen. And Jesus used them to turn the world upside down. As your pastors, because we're passionate about the church, we don't just want to make disciples. Our job is to equip you to make disciples. That's true in the past. It'll continue to be true in the future. We want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. If you know the hope that comes from Christ, are you ready when someone notices that hope to explain to them why you have it, why you're different, why your life seems to respond to the challenges and sufferings that we all face differently than most people do? We're all gifted differently. Some of you are going to be more comfortable explaining these things excuse me, than others. And that's why God gives us each other to encourage, to help us build one another up. All of life, speaking to people about Christ, living out his commands, showing hospitality, welcoming people, making friendships and connections in a world that is increasingly isolated and cut off from one another, these are things that point to Christ and they're all part of the effort of disciple-making. So as we move into the future, ask yourself, who are you discipling? Who are you showing Christ to in this way? Are you a parent? If so, you have at least one person that you can be discipling today, that you have to be discipling today. Parents, show your kids who Jesus is and what we teach and how we live. Who among your friends family, co-workers, neighbors are Christians maybe who are not as far along in their faith as you. God's placed you in proximity to them to teach them, to help disciple them, whether they're a part of this church or not. The people who you are in circles with, 
who you have more spiritual maturity, you've spent more time following Christ, what are you doing to pour the overflow of what God's given you into them, to build them up? And who among your friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, aren't Christians, but there are opportunities for you to do all these same things, to call them, to invite them to follow Christ, and to let them see your life as an example of what that looks like. The highs, the lows, and everything in between. Discipleship is not like an official designated activity. Now, there there are sometimes we meet together to do discipleship, right? We use that language where we're studying the word, where we're talking about life. But discipleship is not just that. Discipleship happens all the time in any place. And it's something that we're all called to as Christians. It's our mission straight from Jesus' mouth to make disciples of all people. That's why we've been passionate about the gospel, the Bible, the community of the local church for the last three years. It's why we'll continue to be passionate about those things moving into the future. So how do we get this job done? How do we accomplish this mission? Well, Jesus says in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a great reminder that Jesus will accomplish the mission, not us. And that's good news. That's something that we need to hear on a day like today, where it's easy to look and say, is this a failure that we've come to at this point in time? Did we do something wrong? Is there something we could have done differently to avoid getting to this spot? Ultimately, God is in control of everything. Now, that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to do the best we have with who we have and what we have and glorify him. But it does mean that Jesus will accomplish his mission, not us. Our success or failure will always be defined not by results, but by faithfulness. Because you and I have absolutely zero control of results. You can't save a single person's soul. Neither can I. And so if we define our success or failure as Christians, as a church, based on how many people we can go out there and save, we're going to be setting ourselves up for failure. Because you can't do it. You can do everything right, and people still walk away and reject Christ. On the other hand, you can do a lot of things wrong, and God in his power will will still reach out, grab somebody, and transform their life. So we don't base our vision of success based on our size, based on our giving, based on our results, based on any of those easily measurable factors that we so often get roped into thinking define what a good, healthy church looks like. We will always define success or failure based on the question, have we been faithful to this mission? Have we been faithful to go into the world and make disciples? Our success isn't defined by how quickly we grow. Our success isn't defined by any sort of of number of things. But are we being faithful to follow this mission? And from there, we trust God with the results. We trust what he will do. So hear these words from the Great Commission this morning. And remind yourself of this truth, of this reality, of this task. If you join us over the next month, at Christ's community for worship, 
in our house church worship in the community here in Crestwood and we and you continue walking together with us as Trinity this is our mission this is what we will continue to be about if this is where we part ways this morning and you're off to join another church go to another place this is your mission this is what you will continue to be about because we are all a part of Christ's church yesterday today and forever let's be faithful to follow his mission in whatever expression, whatever circumstances we find ourselves. And let's trust him with our future. And that will be enough for us. Let's pray.